This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, thanks for being here. Uh, my name is Raj Daftari. I am a, an assistant professor of pediatric emergency medicine, um, and I work here at uh, UCSF at Mission Bay. I'm also the medical director for pediatric emergency medicine at San Francisco General, and I serve as a pediatric advisor for San Francisco Emergency Medical Services. Um, I know we're in uncertain times with um, the coronavirus. Uh, this is a this could be a somewhat heavy topic to discuss. We're going to be talking about um, under five mortality, or specifically mortality in children under the age of five. Um, but what I want to present to you actually is um, is an oppor- is is what I view as opportunity um, and a reason to be really optimistic and really hopeful about um, uh, the work that has been done and the work that is in front of us right now. Um, so my background: so I trained in pediatrics um, in Washington D.C. from 2008 and 2010. Uh, sorry, 2005 to 2008, and then from 2008 to 2010, I worked with the Baylor International Pediatric AIDS Initiative um, in Maseru Lesotho. And if you've never been to Lesotho or haven't quite heard of it, you wouldn't be the only one. Um, it's a landlocked country. It's entirely surrounded by South Africa, um, and it is a population of about two million people. It r- ranks among the three highest countries in terms of prevalence of HIV, with as many as 40 percent of women of childbearing age having the infection, uh, meaning that there are close to 100,000 children um, with, uh, infected with HIV. So what our job was there was to scale up um, uh, provision of antiretrovirals, um, screening, um, and providing care for these patients that um, were infected with HIV. But not only that, we were building up the healthcare infrastructure. So my job was a pediatric hospitalist working in the National Referral Hospital of Maseru. And Maseru is a capital city with about a population close to about 80,000 um, in the surrounding area. And so what we did is that we worked on not only HIV, but took care of children with many of the common conditions that we're going to be talking about, those conditions which are responsible for large number of deaths in children under the age of five. After I got back, I did fellowship in Texas uh, for three years in emergency medicine, and then eventually found my way out here to California. What I want to talk about, um, especially you might have noticed in the mini medical school series or just in, in medical school in general, we really focus on taking care of the patient, the individual, and sometimes we focus on the, the disorder, right? That is our specialty. That's where we put our hat on. But in emergency medicine, and I think in medicine in general, it, it benefits us all to take a step back and look at the tree. Instead of focusing on the trees, really focus on the forest. And that's what I want to do today. So I want to I share my medical school hat with you, but also my public health background, and tell you some of the things that I get really excited about when it comes to pediatric care. So the objectives we're going to talk about, we're going to review the historical trends in uh, child mortality, and we're going to look at two major endeavors, two major campaigns, the Millennium Development Goals and the Sustainable Development Goals sponsored by the United Nations and a collection of countries to reduce child mortality, and we'll talk about what progress we've had in regards to those campaigns. I'd also like to talk about kind of what the, the major causes of mortality are internationally, and then also kind of do a comparison domestically, what we're seeing here in the United States 
rates. Um, and then finally, this is where it gets really exciting, we'll talk about the interventions. How do we reduce mortality around the world in children less than five years of age? And, and that brings me to just a little bit of definition before we go any further. When I talk about under five mortality, that is the number of deaths that we see per thousand live births. Okay, so let that sink for just a second. And then I ask the question, why do we focus on children under the age of five? And the answer is because that is the highest risk. If you had to divide up the years between zero to 18, when a child might face a life-threatening illness or condition, it is usually under the age of five where you're going to see it. After the age of five, we see far fewer incidents of infectious disease. We see far lesser impacts of congenital disorders. And we see more um, the impacts of injury, for example. Okay. Um, Thankfully, we've seen major uh, reductions in under five mortality just through since the 1800s, just through economic prosperity and, uh, and development improvements in water and sanitation and public health campaigns and advent of vaccines and antibiotics. We've made huge progress. So worldwide, we were seeing very large mortality rates and we've seen natural declines without any major camp directed campaigns just by virtue of there being economic prosperity, that has actually lifted up all countries so that we're seeing reductions. However, there is still a large burden of illness and a large number of mortality, especially in resource-limited settings and what we sometimes refer to as the developing world. So uh, what we know is that we had very high mortality rates, but from 1960 to 1990, we saw huge progress worldwide. And we have those rates so that by 1990, essentially we had rates around 90 per 1,000 live births. Okay. That still equates to 12.4 million children dying every single year in 1990. And huge inequities were seen in terms of those countries that had low resources versus those that were very economically advanced. Okay. So in 1990, the world said, okay, we're going to have a world summit for children, and let's look at this problem, and let's set a goal for ourselves. And that goal was simply, let's just do a one-third reduction within 10 years. Let's do targeted campaigns and see how we can bring this mortality rate down from around the 90s to about 70 per thousand. It was a 10-year goal, and what initially seemed like it was going to be feasible due to, at that time, reduction rates, about 2.5, fell short because those reduction rates started to taper off. And what you'll see as we talk more and more about this is that there is some low-hanging fruit that we should definitely be attacking, right? But then once we start hitting the low-hanging fruit, some of the more persistent problems become a little bit more challenging. There's not a simple antibiotic or a simple solution that's going to fix some of these problems. And a lot of it is about building up healthcare infrastructure. So historically, so what happened next? So in 2000, there was a Millennium Declaration by the United Nations. This happened in 2000, and what the statement was, there was a series of statements, and uh, goal number four said that every individual has a right to dignity, freedom, equality, and a basic standard of living that includes freedom from hunger and violence and, and encourages tolerance and solidarity. And so 
the, um, there was the release of the Millennium Development Goals, and they dealt with health goals, economic goals, education goals, and, and environmental goals. But the one that we're going to be talking about today is number four. And essentially what that said is let's reduce by two-thirds the mortality rate using 1990 as the benchmark. Let's reduce it by 2015. Let's see if we can get that number down to 31 out of 1,000 or reduce by two-thirds. So a hugely ambitious goal, right? We're talking about a mortality rate from 12 million. Let's bring that down to somewhere around 4 million. Let's see if we can do that, okay? And what that required was an annual reduction rate of 4.4%. We would have to reduce worldwide, on average, mortality rates by 4.4% in order to get to that number. And if you think about what we did from 1990, from 2000, where we were hitting 2.5, but then 1%, this is a major scale-up. This is a major worldwide challenge. And I, I love this because I feel like you're not always meant to hit your goals. You should, you should strive for almost impossible goals so that even if you miss, right, you're going to hit the barn, right? So um, what they did was they said, okay, we're going to target some countries. We recognize that some countries have a higher burden of disease and have a higher burden of mortality rates for children under the age of five compared to those that are more economically advanced. And in these low- and middle-income countries that were targeted, what they found was that your likelihood of dying under the age of five was 18 times more likely than if you were compared to countries outside of these targets. Okay, And we knew that 42 countries accounted for 90% of deaths. So just let that sink in for a second. So 42 countries, right? We have somewhere around 200 countries in our world. So 40, so a fraction of that accounted for 90% of all deaths. 68% accounted for 97. And the highest rates were in sub-Saharan Africa and Southern Asia and Southeast Asia. This is a map <clears throat> which is basically outlining in 2000 where child deaths were occurring. And if you can see, if you can kind of distinguish the um, little red dots, each red dot stands for 5,000 child deaths that year. And you can see a huge concentration in southern Asia, right? So that is India and Bangladesh, that is Pakistan, uh, that is Afghanistan, right? You can see Indonesia as well. China has a, um, quite a bit, and then you can see in Southeast Asia, as well as what is considered the malaria belt in Africa. You can see Nigeria has a huge amount of deaths, as does Eastern Africa, and then parts of Western Africa as well, okay? And then these are some of the, the countries that were targeted as of 2008. So you have got two colors. The, the first color is essentially the initial countries and then additional countries that were then added as they scaled up. This is the data from 2000. So there are two different things I, I want to talk about here. So in the left column, we're talking about absolute number of deaths, right? So the total number of deaths that we were seeing per year. And in India, that was 2.4 million. In Nigeria, 830,000. And China and Pakistan and, and the DRC. I do think it's, it's worth doing a comparison um, of India and China, two countries of quite similar um, uh, total population, but population density is quite different. Governance is quite different in those as well. Uh, but you'll see that India had almost more, more than a threefold increase compared to China. On the other column, instead of just thinking about now absolute numbers, let's think about proportionally where is a child at highest risk. And so what we see is that in the countries on the, on the right-hand side, so Sierra Leone, Niger, Angola, Afghanistan, Liberia, in 2000, they had rates as high as 300 per thousand. That means 30% of every child that was born had a risk of dying before the age of five, or 30% of children under the age of five wouldn't make it to their fifth birthday. 
Okay. And if you can see the commonality between those countries on the right side, most of those countries were experiencing severe civil unrest right around 2000. So the question was, was the Millennium Development Goals successful? So it kind of depends on how you define it, right? So remember, their target was a two-thirds reduction, so roughly 66%. Well, they hit an overall reduction of 53%, but that is still significant. That is immense, right? So we've gone from roughly around... 85, 90 per thousand to about 43 per thousand. So even though they fell short of their goal, that is 4 million fewer deaths in 2015 compared to 2000. That is huge. That's 4 million lives that were saved. There were regional variations in success, but one of the things that's really significant is that there was a dramatic uh, improvement in reduction rates in Africa and also in Asia. Africa almost doubled its reduction rates within the span of 15 years since implementation of the MDG challenge to the end of 2015. So let's go back to that comparison of target countries. And so this is the, the table that I showed you previously in terms of absolute numbers. And you can just see the comparison between India in 2000 and 2017. So half, half of it, the mortality is about half of what it was before, from 2.4 million to 1 million. Nigeria, unfortunately, didn't see a significant decline. Um, but Pakistan did, as did DRC Congo. And interestingly, China was pulled off of this list because they had dramatic improvements. And one of the major areas of improvements that they had was an infectious disease. So, for example, pneumonia and diarrhea being causes of death were significantly reduced. And then the, the more difficult ones um, that deal with congenital abnormalities and preterm births, those are the ones that they continue to work on. So, again, running the numbers, you know, this, is, this lecture has just a ton of numbers to it, but, but I just want to show you the trend here. So 1990, 12.4 million to 10 million to 7 million, down to 6 million in 2015. In the span of 25 years, we halved, halved the amount of children that were dying per year, and that is a significant improvement. The, the place that we still continue to have a challenge is especially with the neonatal mortality. So as of 2015, this is a map that shows you um, essentially where that mortality was. So um, if you see over here, these colors indicate, the darker red colors kind of indicate where there's a high mortality or still about 100 per 1,000 versus this, this darker bluish color, which is basically about 5 uh, per 1,000 or less. And interestingly, because there is some variation within countries, and some countries provided more information to this study in particular, you can see, for example, in the United States, we have a, a difference between California and Texas, uh, some of the northeastern states, right, as comparison. But more importantly, if we think about the target areas, so the malaria belt in particular is still having high mortality um, you can see that um, Mali, in particular, uh, also a, a place of persistent civil unrest. North and South Sudan um, have places the DRC also continues to have major, uh, or sorry, very high rates of mortality. Um, India has had some reductions, and this is what's I think very promising as well is that you'll see some regions within India that have dropped into that kind of bluish color that are showing some significant increases. So the point being is that not every country has the same challenges, some regions within country are even seeing progress. And that is really hopeful. So, so what remains? Where do we stand right now? So we're still seeing about five point, as of 2015, looking at 2015 numbers, we were seeing about 5.9 million deaths per year. And those, the top three in this order for um, deaths related to preterm complications or just prematurity from pneumonia and from intrapartum, so during birth uh, mortality. Okay, so that's, that's really uh, death within the first 24 hours. 
Um, if you break it down, it's almost an even split, but it's, we're still seeing a little bit more, uh, a higher total rate of mortality or total amount of mortality in one month to 59 months. But if you, if you think about just the 28 days of neonatal period, that's still 45% of all mortality. And the, the major causes there are preterm and intrapartum followed by sepsis. Okay. So again, I want to point out, um, I'm going to take um, a little extra effort and show you when it comes up. So pneumonia is number two over here. And then as you move into neonatal period, infectious-related causes, you're number three. And then after, so in one month and older, you've got three out of the top four are related to infections. So infections are still um, a considerable challenge in many parts of the world and still account for a major cause of mortality in children under the age of five years old. This is a slide saying, where, how did we get from 78 per 1,000, which is slightly different than the number I showed you in another slide, but 78 per 1,000 deaths in under 5, how do we get from there all the way to 43, right? So what they did was basically they looked at all the reductions that happened over the course of 15 years, and they said, what were the ones that were the most impactful? So we saw, so if you take these five here, if you look at reductions that happen in these five categories from pneumonia, diarrhea, malaria, measles, and neonatal intrapartum-related deaths, that alone accounts for a 60% reduction, so huge strides. And they get the green color because that green color shows that even within that category, there is a 30% reduction. So that means that pneumonia deaths by themselves reduce 30%. Diarrheal deaths, malaria deaths, measles deaths, all of these decrease, excuse me, not measles, but um, yet measles isn't in there, sorry. So so even measles had a reduction of about 30% or more overall, which brought the total numbers down quite significantly. I'm going to skip this slide, but what this slide is just basically showing you is the absolute numbers. It's hard to read from distance, but absolute numbers from death overall, I'll just give you some highlighted ones. We're seeing about a million deaths per year, diarrhea about 690, and from sepsis about 530,000. Okay. This slide, I think, is especially interesting, and I'm going to just... Full disclosure, I'm a little colorblind, so this, this one's a little bit hard for me to read. But I'm going to point out some general trends that I think are very important to look at. Okay? On your y-axis, you've got the sociodemographic index. And that basically is a score that looks at educational attainment, um, fertility rates, and also looks at uh, income inequality within a country. So in a perfect score, you have one. And in an imperfect score, where you have very high fertility rates, where you have low education rates, where you have a high amount of income inequality or overall income is low, you're going to fall towards the bottom end of that. So what we know is in those regions that have good education and good income and low fertility rates, the cause of death is different than it is at the lower end of that scale. And the way you read this graph is that basically there's a dotted line. These are two different graphs, but they talk about essentially the same thing. So on the left side, it talks about the rates, right? So this is, this, sorry, excuse me, this talks about kind of the overall, what is the mortality rate within this group? Right? So th- this is the number. Is it 100 per 1,000? Is it even higher that than that, potentially in particular regions? And then this tells you, for the mortality in that SDI or that sociodemographic index, how much does each particular disease play a role in the total mortality? Does everyone follow that? So if you take, for example, diarrheal illnesses, which is this color right here, so you'll see that overall diarrheal illnesses account for quite a bit of the number of deaths for those low SDI regions versus if you go up here, it's, it's not even on the chart. Right? I mean, you can't even see it, right? So, and that is why 
it, may, it comprises very little, if any at all, of what the overall mortality is, right? But while it's not as high as, say, some of these other ones, it's pretty close and still accounts for a large number of deaths. So what this means and how you should look at this is essentially you'll see that there's a lot of infectious causes of death, including diarrheal illnesses, lower respiratory tract infections, pertussis, tetanus, measles, malaria, account for quite a bit of mortality in low SDI regions where it doesn't really have that much of a role up here. Up here, it's congenital abnormalities, birth-related complications, uh, and injuries. Okay. Let's think about it one different way. All right. Let's think about those countries where you have very high mortality rates, somewhat high mortality rates, low mortality rates, and very low mortality rates. So what we know is that there are seven countries with very high mortality rates. And I'll show you a slide of that in just a minute. Okay. But the top, what I want to show you is essentially what percentage is attributed to those number of countries and what the causes are in those countries as com a comparison. And again, what you'll see is in the very high mortality countries, you'll see pneumonia, malaria, and diarrhea. You still see it kind of in this high, medium high, medium kind of area. They all kind of share pneumonia as a second leading cause. But then you start to see preterm birth and intrapartum related events as the cause for mortality. And then as we move down to our low mortality regions, which is comprised of 54 countries, it's only 9% of total deaths. But we start to see more congenital abnormalities and preterm birth complications. So we see some infection. And then we move to very low mortality countries, which includes the United States and congenital abnormalities, preterm birth complications, and then injuries account for under five mortality there. Question? Are you talking about why more abnormalities or the specifics of any of this? That just puzzles me and I'm wondering if it's like reporting-wise, like in countries that have a lower mortality rate, like the general abnormalities would be more reported versus in other countries where perhaps let me, yeah, let me, I mean, like, that. right, um, that's a great question. So the question is about congenital um, abnormalities and what role they play. So it's going to come up in the lecture, but I don't like to leave questions hanging. So let me just give you kind of a preview. And then if I don't answer it sufficiently, when we get to the section, let me know and we'll talk more about it. But in general, if you think about, um, so not every child will die from every congenital abnormality right away, right? Sometimes that that um, a death related to a congenital abnormality may happen in two or three years. If it is a stable uh, congenital heart disease that eventually has, for example, some valvular stenosis or maybe a pulmonary stenosis, that may cause problems as they grow bigger and grow older, but they may not have it as a life-threatening presentation immediately. Instead, they need to get through that first month of life, and they are still facing problems from neonatal diarrhea and pneumonia and sepsis and meningitis, in addition to complications related to malnutrition, which we'll talk about. So it's not that um, we're seeing, and I'm not really, I don't have the data to show one way or another whether the incidence of congenital malformations and abnormalities is higher or lower in resource-limited versus developed countries. There is some, uh, there, anecdotally, because we do folic acid supplementation, prenatal vitamins, folic acid has had a huge role in reducing congenital abnormalities related to neurologic-related um, problems. Um, so we do have lower rates, but in general, the, the, the reason isn't because of incidence. The reason is because there are other problems that are, are getting to these children or causing mortality in these children before the congenital abnormality does. Does that make sense? Question. Um, for malaria, is malaria passed on from mom to fetus 
so that the child's born with malaria, or is it something that they're getting? Yeah. Right, great question. So, and, and there's a really fun slide, and I'm going to use the word fun, but like really exciting slide that talks about what the impact of maternal malaria infection is. But usually it, it's not, uh, there's not in utero transmission of malaria. Um, what does happen, though, is that um, a mother can um, have a severe malaria infection, which can um, lead to anemia in the mother, and that can make it a less hospitable environment for the fetus. And so that, that fetus or that child is then born premature, also is born anemic, and also has a low birth weight. So all those things kind of compound upon themselves. So that's why um, there's an intervention we're going to talk about, treating uh, pregnant mothers for malaria, even if they don't have malaria, actually has some huge impacts. Okay? Uh, great question. Other questions? Nope? Okay. All right, so moving forward. Um, so I talked about those countries that had the highest. Again, we're gonna, there's the difference between those countries that have high absolute mortality and those countries with high mortality rates. So this is a slide that talks about essentially the, the countries with the highest mortality rates where that number, that more, uh, number per thousand is especially highest. And you'll see that all 10 of these countries are in sub-Saharan Africa. So they include um, Angola, Chad, Somalia, the Central African Republic, Sierra Leone, Mali, Nigeria, um, Benin, uh, the DRC, um, and Equatorial Guinea. And I think what, what the take-home point on this slide is that you'll see largely that these colors are uniform, meaning that pneumonia, diarrhea, preterm complications, intrapartum, these first four colors are essentially the same. The, the one place where you see variation is actually in malaria. So malaria, the burden of malaria is much higher, for example, in um, Sierra Leone versus Somalia. And, and personally, I can't tell you the, the reason for the differences, um, but, but it, there is a huge difference in terms of how it accounts for their overall mortality. I'm sorry, when is, when is this? Uh, this is from 2017, I believe. Okay, thank you. Sorry, it was a 2016 paper citing 2015 data. Um, and then this is what it looks like for the countries with the 10 highest absolute numbers, right? So now you're going to start to see a little bit more variation. In particular, if you look at India versus Nigeria, right? So malaria has a huge toll in terms of overall death, whereas in India, it's, it's actually preterm birth complications. You still see some infectious causes such as pneumonia and diarrhea, but it starts to become a little bit less important or just a, a lower number than you might see in some of the other countries. So and I'm, I'm bouncing back and forth between years. Uh, of data, and that's just because that's where the papers were available, and this is how it makes sense in this discussion. So if you see some conflicting information, that's why it's happening. Um, one thing I wanted to point out, that the point of this slide is essentially the regional variation. So if you look at these yellows, these, these yellows represent neonatal deaths, and you can see in Africa it accounts for basically about a quarter of deaths, whereas in Southeast Asia it's about half of deaths. Right. And that goes back to the question that came up. Why is it congenital abnormalities and why is it necessarily neonatal? And that's simply because here the total death amount is actually higher, right? And there's a very large amount of infectious causes such as diarrhea, such as malaria, such as pneumonia, that it actually squeezes that pie into something that, that looks like it's less of a problem but is equally a problem. So now, now I want to talk about malnutrition. So one of the things that was hardest for me to... Um, to see and to take care of and try to treat, especially when I was working abroad, and still kind of has my heart a little bit, is, is malnutrition, the idea of malnutrition. 
And we no longer report malnutrition as a direct cause of death. Instead, it is implicated as a secondary cause of death. And what we know is that it is implicated in about 53% of all deaths. Um, this is from a, a paper that was uh, from 2003, but during that time, it was correlated to death. It was um, in 61% uh, of diarrheal deaths, 57% of, of malaria, 53% of pneumonia, and 53% of measles. We know that if you are mildly malnourished, then um, your risk of death was twice as high than if you weren't. And if you had moderate to severe malnutrition, your risk of death was five to eight times higher. This is because we don't have the energy reserves to fight infections, to weather a severe illness, um, and to mount a proper immune response. When we think about neonatal mortality, so again, this accounts for at least 41% of total under five mortality, and as we start to decrease the infectious causes or the communicable causes, this is going to uh, play a bigger role. When we think about neonatal mortality, so neonate means the first 28 days of life, right? So we're comparing a period of 28 days versus 1,800 days, and we know day per day your likelihood of death is 30 times higher in the first 28 days and, and significantly higher in the first 24 hours of life. It has been the slowest group to decline. Uh, we know that some of the reasons are because the, the causes of neonatal mortality are linked to maternal health. And maternal health and maternal mortality is its own target for reduction. We're still seeing about 500,000 deaths per year from pregnancy-related uh, complications. Uh, major causes, again, um, for neonatal uh, mortality include infection, uh, include intrapartum ischemic events, um, as well as things that are preventable, such as tetanus. Uh, we know that low birth weight incomes have um, more difficult outcomes, and that could be from either prematurity or, again, they're just small for gestational age. And this is a really interesting table that I, um, I like to look at because essentially it tells you this is, this is where the risk is coming from, right? So if you think about it, this is day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. If you can make it to day five, your likelihood of death starts to level off and really drop, right? But it's in that, those first seven days when we think about the essential care that we're providing, early breastfeeding, warming, clean delivery kits, um, using safe sanitary practices, um, these things will all impact neonatal mortality, especially in the first week of life, um, as well as providing um, better maternal outcomes, right? So those two things are linked together. And then finally, just as a comparison, it always is nice to understand what our place is in the world um, and also kind of... Um, see what work is left for us to be done. So um, child mortality, and UNICEF reported this. This is a little bit difficult to parse out, but so for children aged one year old to four years old, the mortality rate was 0 0.932 uh, per thousand per year, but our under five mortality rate as of 2018 was about 6.53 per thousand live births. And I'll show you an overall comparison of, of how we did and stacked up against other countries. But this is taken from the CDC. It's a little bit hard to read from this Distance, but what you'll see is essentially they have taken major causes of mortality for basically every five years, and then they've grouped into the larger sections for adults. But essentially you've got less than one, one to four, five to nine, ten to fourteen. And what we're talking about is these first two columns today, but essentially congenital anomalies uh, account for 4,500 uh, 4, deaths per year. Short um, Prematurity accounts for about 3,800 
maternal pregnancy complications, about 1,500, SIDS, 1,300, and then injuries, 1,300. And then about number seven, 500 is the first infectious cause, which is bacterial sepsis. So that's for children less than one year of age. And then for children one to four, it's unintentional injury and then congenital anomalies, then cancer, uh, and then homicide, then heart disease, then infection from influenza and pneumonia. So for infections for us, it's number six and number seven, and they're just a fraction, uh, about a tenth of the other major cause, which is congenital abnormality or unintentional injury. This is uh, 2011 data, but what you're looking at here is our 0 to 6 mortality, uh, and that's 3.1 compared to the rest of the developed world, so we're higher. It, uh, hopefully, we all know that we have work to be done in this country, but we're higher. Compared to the developing world, it's 17.7. Worldwide, this is the number. And if you group these together, essentially 3.9 is that total, and that accounts for about half of or more than half of total under 5 mortality. And again, this is how we stack up against the rest of the world. Okay, so our, our rates are higher than parts of the developed world. Is anyone surprised by that? No? Okay. Um, so, so where are we now? So, so I've given you a lot of numbers, and hopefully we're, we're not feeling despair just yet. Because remember, there's huge accomplishments, and there's a lot for us to be proud of, um, and there's work to be carried forward. So what um, the countries, um, the, the next step after the Millennium Development Goal was, okay, what's the next step? Well, it's the Sustainable Development Goals. And so now we're targeting 2030. And what the goal here is, is that we want to end preventable deaths, all preventable deaths of newborns and children under the age of five by 2030. So what that really would look like is uh, equates a mortality rate of about 25 child deaths per 1,000 live births or about 12 neonatal deaths per 1,000 live births. So we still know that there are some deaths that are unavoidable, some congenital abnormalities that we do not have the technology, the science, the means to treat or to cure. Um, and we acknowledge that there, there will always be some number. But there are those causes of death that can be prevented, and that's what we should be working towards. So this is our new goal. Okay. So the way forward... What I'd like to do, I've got a, an exercise. I'd like to pass this out. What you should do, so take a look at the sheet. And basically, this is um, borrowed from a 2003 study that um, um, is really interesting. And what they talk about is how we can provide interventions for known causes of death. So what you'll see is on the x-axis on top is the major causes of mortality. And on the y-axis, there are interventions that can be provided. So what I'd like you to do for the next minute or so is just put an X wherever you think there is an intervention that can reduce mortality from that particular illness. Okay? And just as a hint, some interventions are effective against more than one type of illness, and some illnesses have more than one intervention that can reduce their mortality. Uh, I'm going to go through this. Uh, in the first column, or sorry, in the first row, and I'll just probably do this for just a few select ones. But actually, let's, let's do it this way. So for diarrhea, the interventions that we know that are effective would be um, breastfeeding, uh, complementary feeding, and I'll define that in just a minute, uh, improved water, sanitation, and hygiene, uh, zinc supplementation, vitamin A supplementation, uh, and then moving to treatment interventions, it would be oral rehydration therapy, antibiotics for dysentery, and again, zinc. Now, uh, let me, let's, let's go a different direction. So let's talk about preventative interventions. Let's talk about breastfeeding. So breastfeeding had reductions in diarrhea and in pneumonia, 
and in neonatal sepsis. Complementary feeding had reductions in diarrhea, pneumonia, measles, and malaria. Uh, Let's do vitamin A. So vitamin A had an impact on diarrhea, measles, and malaria. Yeah, those are the big ones I want to talk about. Oh, and sorry, we'll do pneumonia too. So pneumonia had reductions from breastfeeding, complementary feeding, the haemophilus vaccine, which is HIB or HIB, um, as well as zinc, um, and then also antibiotics for pneumonia. So um, this was done um, in a really fantastic 2003 Lancet study where basically they evaluated all the interventions that were available and all the major causes of death and said, do we at least have one intervention for every major cause of death? And they found, yes, yes, actually we do, except for neonatal asphyxia. But this was a 2003 study. And since then, we've had the advent of other technologies and interventions that can reduce even the rate of uh, mortality from neonatal asphyxia. So one of those is something simple called bubble CPAP, which is basically just a really low-tech mechanical ventilation-type support for breathing for babies that um, uses the equivalent of a pump that you might find in an aquarium. That little bubble maker that you have in an aquarium that oxygenates the water, you can use that. You can adapt it to actually provide um, respiratory support for newborn babies. And it, it is at a very low cost, and it, it has significantly reduced mortality. So so that is pretty exciting. So if I don't have this cited here, but essentially it's called the Live Save Tool. And if you're curious about this, especially if you just have a couple minutes and you really want to explore everything we're talking about today, I would um, go to, to the website called the Live Save Tool um, and go to a section called the Visualizer. If you Google Live Save Tool and Visualizer, you're going to come up to a map that looks like this. And what this is, it's called the conceptual framework. And they have outlined interventions, risk factors, and the causes of death. So if you work backwards, you'll look at the causes of death, you'll see what are the risk factors for it, and what are the interventions that we can do to reduce that. And each one of these boxes that has a little bubble expands into a whole menu of options that you can do. So what I've done is basically I went through this and picked a couple of the key interventions that we're going to talk about. Pneumonia is going to be one of them. Diarrhea is going to be another one of them. But we're going to talk about how we can reduce overall death and what are some of the things um, that influence the outcomes of these. So um, one major intervention that uh, I feel like um, we probably, sometimes we, um, folks can feel like all they hear is discussion about the benefits of breastfeeding. Um, and, and some folks feel like maybe we get a little bit of overload. And some of us get like really fanatical about the benefits of it. And I think you know, it should be a measured conversation. And there's a lot to consider, especially um, in a resource-rich setting where you have alternatives, safe alternatives. But in resource-limited settings, when you don't have access to formula, affordable formula, when you don't have access to clean water, that is a very different conversation. And so when we talk about exclusive breastfeeding, um, what we're talking about is only breast milk, only breastfeeding, uh, if a mother is able to produce breast milk for, uh, uh, for six months of life. Until their sixth birthday, the only thing that they're consuming is breast milk. And that's different from what we're recommending as pediatricians here in the United States, where we say, at four months, start to give them some like, you know, rice cereal and some mashed foods and get the textures in and then start giving them more solid foods. We're saying absolutely not. Absolutely not until they are six months 
adults or older in these high-risk settings. And that is because of the reasons I outlined, as well as finding um, reliable food sources that aren't contaminated, that won't precipitate a diarrheal illness. So our goal for exclusive breastfeeding is to, we, we want that target to be 90%, and we are nowhere close to it. It should start early at one hour post-delivery, and it should go all the way to six months. And then after six months, we should do introduction of solid foods, but we should continue breastfeeding until 24 months of life. And that, that is later than, than what is a trend in a lot of the developed countries. And again, it's for the reasons that I outlined. Because of the many benefits of breastfeeding that can extend past 12 months of life into 24 months of life, or even later, as is the trend in many countries, it's, it's highly recommended for complementary feeding. So if we look at how does breastfeeding do all this magic? Well, so basically what we know is that through continued breastfeeding, we can reduce the incidence of diarrhea, okay? If we reduce the incidence of diarrhea, then we can reduce the likelihood of stunting. Stunting is another um, way to look at malnutrition. So malnutrition essentially is defined as what is your weight compared to your height. Compared to what your height is, what should your weight be? And that tells you essentially if you have an acute uh, nutritional deficiency. Stunting, on the, on the other hand, tells us what is your height for your age? Are you growing overall as you should be, or are you even delayed in that? And if you are, then you have stunting. So if you have stunting, that means that you have chronic malnutrition, right? And if you have chronic malnutrition, then your immune system is compromised. You already are more susceptible to infection, so you're likely having mortality from meningitis, from having pneumonia, from having measles, from having all these other infectious causes already is going to be in Increased. And in addition, so we talked about diarrhea will get you malnourished. Well, breastfeeding can also protect against all these other causes because of the benefits nutritionally, but also because of maternal antibodies that cross um, into breast milk as, as you're breastfeeding. So for many, many reasons, breastfeeding is, is almost, it's, if we had a silver bullet, if we had a silver bullet in reducing child mortality, it would be breastfeeding. That is the best thing we have. So then let's talk about, so the question came up about malaria. So this is um, a, um, an intervention called the Intermittent Preventative Treatment in Pregnancy for Malaria. And what that is, it's scheduled administration of three doses of antimalarials to women during um, pre-pregnancy visits, during um, prenatal visits, when they're getting their health screenings. It's now recommended to have at least three visits. And during these visits, you empirically, meaning you automatically give them antimalarials without even testing them without even knowing if they have malaria, you just treat them, right? And what we know is that even if they didn't have malaria, it reduces overall maternal mortality, it reduces maternal fetal anemia, and it reduces low birth weight. And so if we look at this model again, so here we go again, right? So if we're going to, if we treat using this program, we're going to have an impact on their um, size. So this is small for gestational age. So if you were on the website and you clicked on this arrow, you'd see the, the odds uh, reduction that in that. But we would reduce their incidence of being low birth weight, and in doing so, reduce their likelihood of dying from sepsis, pneumonia, and from an asphyxia-related complication, an overall reduction in neonatal mortality. And also, we know that if you're not small for gestational age, you're going to be better able to take in calories and get nutrition, so you're less likely to be stunted. Thinking about micronutrient supplementation, so there's vitamin A and there's zinc. So... Um, 
in many places in um, resource-limited settings and in the developing world, we know that there is vitamin A deficiency. So if we provide just schedule supplementation, just like you would go in and get your vaccines, you're also going to get doses of vitamin A twice a year um, from the ages of 6 months to 59 months. We know that it would reduce the incidence of diarrhea. It is also a treatment for malnutrition and for measles. Um, And so overall, improving our nutrition status, as I've mentioned before, reduces our overall mortality. And then there's zinc supplementation, which reduces the severity of diarrheal illnesses. So one more time. So I'm going to show you this model again. So vitamin A supplementation, again, we can decrease the incidence of diarrhea. If we can bring down diarrhea, we can decrease your likelihood of chronic malnutrition and stunting, and then we can reduce mortality that way. And not only that, can we also directly have an impact on diarrhea? And also, by the way, we know that children who are vitamin A deficiency have a much worse outcome from measles, and so it is treatment for measles in many places where there is chronic malnutrition. And then finally, zinc. This was something that I don't practice here in the United States, but I did practice in Lesotho. And the reason why is because in the United States, I don't see zinc deficiency. But in Lesotho, I saw so much zinc deficiency. And it's not something, excuse me, let me rephrase. I didn't see it because it's not something you can easily visually see, but it is a presumed diagnosis. And providing zinc was a standard of care for diarrhea in those resources, resource-limited settings and has been well studied to reduce mortality, whereas in the United States, it actually doesn't have as much of an impact because we don't have that zinc deficiency. So, um, so we're talking about, so the challenge that I'm, hopefully I'm showing you here is, again, it's not about creating some magic formula to fixing a problem, these common problems. It is actually about getting those known solutions out there. Okay, and and what this paper looked at is essentially looking at uh, the number of of um, deaths that we're we're currently seeing, um, and then how we might be able to reduce them in terms of from breastfeeding, from uh, using, for example, uh, vaccines. What kind of reduction that we would actually see, and if we could um, scale up to, and this is again using two thousand numbers from from the year two thousand. The question was, were they going to hit the Millennium Development Goals or not? And so what this paper argued was that if you could scale up by 99%, if you could say in in a perfect world, if you could just get these solutions out there and we could get buy-in and we could effectively do it, then we could reduce 6.3 million deaths. Right, so we could we could take away a huge fraction of the under five mortality um, in 2000. If you just wanted to know kind of what the baseline numbers were, so breastfeeding any child that was getting breastfed from the ages of six to 11 months, this was what you might consider partial complementary feeding was actually pretty high at 90 percent. But this is what I want to show you right here: exclusive breastfeeding. So worldwide, the actual practice of exclusive breastfeeding was in the 30s. It was 39 percent in 2000. Right, and this is considered one of the highest in terms of where we have good coverage rates. And then these, some of these are a little bit um, newer, uh, newer interventions that were being offered, but we had, these were the lowest ones. For example, this is an antiretroviral, this is nevirapine and replacement feeding, so formula feeding in children who were born to HIV-infected mothers. Right. So this is a problem that I was thinking a lot about in Lesotho. But practically speaking, it's very difficult, especially trying to procure expensive formula. And so naturally, you would expect that the coverage rate would be quite low, about 5%.
I'm going to jump ahead just a couple slides, but um, in general, what, what this slide, this very colorful slide is looking to do is um, as of 2010, this is showing you where the concentration of our interventions was. Um, and essentially, the yellow ones are essentially the ones that are orange to yellow is birth and postnatal. And we had pretty good intervention coverage between 60 and 86 percent. Um, and those included um, immunizations. Uh, as well as um, uh, micronutrient supplementation. And then some of the things that come a little bit later, kind of throughout childhood, water and sanitation, we had variable coverage and success with those. Global, yes. Um, this is just a before and after in terms of scale up of breastfeeding in general. Um, and these are older numbers, but you can see, for example, so Lisutu, um, it was 1996 to 2004, exclusive breastfeeding went from 16% and it increased to 36%. So that number at 36% isn't amazing, but what that tells you is that, look, we can actually make quite a bit of an intervention in less than 10 years. What um, you should see to read these box plots, basically this tells you what the, the median is in terms of early initiation of breastfeeding among 59 countries. So the median was somewhere around uh, 48%. But then you can see between the 25th and the 75th percentile, there's a huge range between 20 and 80% of country, uh, countries fell. Sorry, 25 to 75% of countries fell within that region where exclusive breastfeeding ranged from 20% coverage to 80% coverage. So this huge variability, right? And then... Um, there is a question about what does it cost to do this, right? So you could make the argument that, and I don't buy this argument, by the way, but um, that we have a limited amount of funds that we can share with the world that we can use to reduce mortality, and at the end of the day, it costs us money uh, in order to save these lives. Well, this paper took a look at the 42 target countries that had the highest amount of mortality and said, if we packaged our services such that we had 18 opportunities of contact with mother and child and we could reduce mortality and we could scale it to 99% coverage, this huge number that we're talking about to, to get that 6 million reduction that I talked about before, what would it cost? Well, it would cost about $887 per life saved or about 5.1 billion U.S. dollars spent annually. And then another spending slide I want to show you is that if we were going to um, reduce the, this is from a 2013 study, if we want to just reduce the deaths from pneumonia and diarrhea using the known interventions, um, and again, pneumonia and diarrhea account for 35% of all deaths, 2 million in total. If we scaled just to 80% coverage, we could avoid 1.4 million deaths at a total cost of about $6.7 billion, right? So we could save 1.5 million lives that uh, equates to somewhere around 5000 maybe $6,000 per life um, if we spent that amount of money. And this is not a political lecture in any way, but I just want to give you perspective. Um, recently, our spending in Afghanistan, our U.S. military intervention, is about $45 billion a year. And now we're talking about $6 billion to save 1.5 million lives. So 1.4 million lives. So one of the things that also is um, a, a good learning point as far as opportunity um, for our work uh, as a community is advocacy, right? Advocating to say what is important, where are the interventions important, where can we have the most impact, and how, as responsible citizens, would we like our money spent? Um, and then finally, I'm going to take a step back, and because I represent the Department of Emergency Medicine, if you've been attending this series, you've um, listened to discussions by other emergency medicine faculty and the work that they're doing. I just kind of wanted to share with you 
I work in just a very small, minute uh, section or cross-section of where a patient in the healthcare system would interact, and that's in the emergency department. But, but how do we think beyond that, right? So we do interventions within the hospital, but we know that if we really want to be effective, we need to take our work outside of the hospital. We need to take it to the pre-hospital setting, so that means as we're getting to the hospital and even then into the communities. This slide basically tells you all the interventions that we could do that we talked about. You find there's an opportunity in the hospital, but there's also an opportunity in the community, and there's also an opportunity within these households to provide a lot of these interventions that we're talking about. So finally, I'd like to um, just take one step back, and I kind of already alluded to it. There's a really, there's, sometimes you come across, at least I come across a paper where I'm like, oh my gosh, that just distills it into language that I can understand, that I can really message. And I read a paper about maternal mortality um, that's dated about, I believe it's about 15 years back, but essentially it talked about the three delays. And I, I think that, and I've seen papers regarding emergency medicine, even one that was written by Andy Tenner, who's faculty here, who, uh, that basically says the three models we can apply to emergency care as well. And the three delays that we see are essentially uh, delayed recognition of an illness or a delay in seeking health care. That's the first delay, right? So um, let's take, for example... Um, I have a child, and that child has difficulty breathing. Well, you know, I'm working in Lesotho, or say, say I'm a family member in Lesotho, and my child has had difficulty breathing for two or three days. And I think, well, this, is, this might be normal. It might not be normal. Someone else had this, and they got better. But you know what? I'm going to go to my local traditional healer, because I don't have a community health worker in my village, or where I live, or I'm living in a really remote area. So I'm going to go to a traditional healer, and that traditional healer is going to say, take this herbal medicine, and I'm going to then say, okay, that's sufficient. I saw care, right? So that's a potential delay, right? But then maybe I say, okay, well, look, I actually need to get my kid to the hospital because he's not eating or drinking anything, and I think things are getting a whole lot worse. So now I'm going to go, but how am I going to get there? I don't have a reliable road that I can go to or go through because it's the rainy season. So I'm going to have difficulties getting to the local community health center, getting to the hospital. And then even if I get there, maybe it's not staffed or maybe it's staffed by someone who hasn't taken care of a child with this particular presentation or doesn't have oxygen or doesn't have antibiotics or doesn't have the imaging modality or necessarily the training that they need, right? So in each one of these scenarios, in each one of these steps, there's an opportunity for intervention, So um, if you attended Carol Chen's lecture, she's talking about training up, providing a pediatric emergency curriculum towards healthcare providers. She she broke it into tiers, right? And and what we have tier one, tier two, tier three, and tier one is that nurse, right? Or it could be the community health worker. So this is the opportunity here, right? This is how we have impact and this is how we have outreach to say, when you have a child with a respiratory illness, consider these things as possible interventions, right? This is your indication that this child needs more care. When we think about delays in transport, Nick Glom works on pre-hospital care, right? So he is developing in Botswana, he's developed um, in conjunction with the government a curriculum and training for pre-hospital providers to implement a brand new emergency medical system in the model that we have in many other parts of the world, right? And hopefully that's a model that can be extended to other countries within the region. And then finally, delay inadequate care upon arrival at health facilities. So a little bit of the work that I did was 
developing quality indicators in pediatric resuscitation, but then also we're working on a basic emergency care course and also training healthcare providers. So these are all opportunities where we can bring our knowledge of these known interventions and we can increase our proficiency in it and our delivery of it to our patients. So finally, in conclusion, I know we talked about, especially in the first half of this lecture, we talked about a lot of mortality and a lot of numbers, right? And it's a, it can be a heavy topic to think about. But I want to remind all of us that we've made huge progress, right? We have halved that number within a span of 25 years, from 1990 to uh, 2015. And we have an ambitious goal to reduce that even more. We still know that roughly 4 to 5 million children will die this year. Right? And that's still an unconscionable number. Right? And there's work to be done to reduce that. But thankfully, there are known interventions for every cause that we have. And for the few causes that we don't, we are continuing to work on that. So finally, what's the future direction? So there is opportunities to build up maternal care, to provide community-based interventions and packaged services, to scale up primary health care, and develop novel interventions. And then... So those are all the positives. And then I think there's something that we need to be really aware of, and that's the impact of climate change. So with climate change, we're likely to see food and water insecurity. We're likely to see civil unrest. We're likely to see large amounts of migration. We're likely to see climate that is hospitable towards vector-borne illness, mosquito-borne illnesses. So we may, we may see a, a, a different trend depending on how our climate changes over the next, next several decades. Um, with that, I'd like to thank you all for being here and open it up to questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.